Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 21 for November 11th, 2010. Uh, I had this listed as the penultimate Captain Pike episode, but I guess we actually have two more Captain Pike episodes. Not just one more. Yes. Yeah, so uh, next week will be the penultimate. There you this, go. This week is the pre-penultimate. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm I'm excited. I love yeah. it when we use big words. So uh, this would be we're going to review today the uh, the John Byrne um, Star Trek crew issues number three, four, and five that came out in May, June, and July of two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. And interesting how it says crew, but really it's number one. Yeah, she's obviously the the main thing. Uh, the first couple issues, there was those other two guys, but they kind of drop off by the time we get to issue number five. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah, so yeah, it's just about her. Yeah, this is her, her early career in Starfleet. Before she's number one. Exactly. Which, yeah, uh, I I have some, some, some things to say about that number one business. <laughs> okay. But we'll talk about that later. Let's uh, go ahead and get into the issue. A teaser. Um, yeah. All right, so Star Trek crew number three. Yes. May 2009, released by IDW, entitled Ghosts. And uh, this one's credits are written and art by John Byrne, colors by Lorvern Kinderski, letters by Neil uh, U- Uiteki, uh and edits by Chris Ryle. All right, so the synopsis. So uh, just starting off, the cover shows... Uh, number one, looking into a it looks like a butcher shop because there's actually like a little butcher knife there, and you see dangling arms and legs, and you see like these tables with some uh, some legs on there, and she's just sitting there with a flashlight with this uh, horrid look on her face. So that's the cover, and then the synopsis. So uh, the crew of the USS Ventura, new ship to us, at least to me. It is. I've never heard of this one before. So they beam down to what looks like a 1950s small town. We find out that this is a colony that was left by Earth, or that actually left Earth shortly after the Eugenics War, and has not been heard from for 300 years. Uh, They're not finding any life, uh, but they think the tricorders might be defective because they're scanning like trees which are obviously trees, and they're saying that it's registering as carrots. They spread out and search for uh, some sign as to, you know, some some inhabitants. So they're searching, and Robbins, which is also known as number one, but she's not a first officer, so I'm going to call her Robbins. Uh, She sees a cemetery out past the airlocks in the actual planet. So she and a few other crewmen start suiting up and are about to leave the dome when the whole city full of people suddenly come out to greet them saying that they've been in an auditorium celebrating Founders Day the whole time that they were exploring. The town people are speaking with the crew when Robbins uh, is still saying how she cannot get any reading of life signs on her tricorder. The mayor overhears her and suggests that they follow him and he will explain everything. So he takes them, uh, the whole crew, they all follow him into this little room. They all walk in and he slams the door and locks them in. <laughs> All right, then we get a shot where the crew is actually beaming back up to the uh, ship, the Ventura, uh, to give the captain an update. They tell him that they should leave the colony alone and that uh, one of them even says that it would be a prime directive violation if they didn't. The captain disagrees, thinking that since it's an Earth colony, it would not fall under the prime directive limitation. Um, as the crew split up to go back to their posts, they start acting a little odd. Robbins uh, actually knocks out another engineer uh, and starts accessing a panel. Uh, she's able to knock out all the ship's communications um, for reasons unknown. Meanwhile, on the surface, we find out that the crew is actually still locked in the room. 
Robbins is using a depleted phaser to blow open the doors, uh, and they end up in a room uh, with all the hanging arms and legs. So back on the ship, more of the crew is being knocked out or stunned by the doppelgangers that are uh, obviously look like the uh, captured crew. Uh, then we go back to the surface, and Robbins is in the room full of the legs and things, and we find out that they're actually android parts. Uh, she's then greeted by a red-eyed robot saying, Don't be afraid, you will come to no harm here. Cut back to the ship, and the fake crew are able to take over the, uh, the bridge, and they actually stun the captain. All right, so back on the planet, Robbins and the uh, robot are out by the graveyard that she saw earlier. Uh, there he tells her, uh, the robot, he... Uh, tells her that uh, there was a group of androids with the colonists when they arrived. Over the time, the colonists all died out and were never able to have any children. The droids themselves uh, were also cannibalized so that he ended up being the last one uh, alive. Uh, eventually, uh, he took it upon himself to create the whole world that the colonists would wanna, wanted to have had and built ro uh, robotic colonists as well. He then tells her that she'll be very comfortable here uh, as his prisoner to help repopulate the planet with living humans. Uh, Robbins then uses a tricorder battery to shock him and races back to find the rest of the crew. Uh, come to find out that just taking out that one robot knocked out all the robot colonists within the whole, sh within the whole planet. Handy. Yep. And then we go back up to the Ventura, where the real crew are back, and they're speaking with the captain. All the duplicates there were knocked out as well. Uh, and Robbins is informed that she's being promoted and transferred to the Enterprise. Da -da 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 -da. Yes, and they didn't actually say Enterprise in words. Oh, that's right. They just showed her the the, the emblem that she's going to be wearing, and it's exactly. it's it's the Enterprise. Exactly. As you had pointed out, and I was totally ignorant of, that uh, all the ships have different badge designs. And being a longtime Star Trek fan that you are, I'm surprised you missed that. Well, if you take a look at the Star Trek technical manual, they make no mention of that. Yeah, but on the show, you, they every time they met up with a new new ship or went to a new space station, there was always a different logo. Well, space stations are one thing. And they didn't get to different ships too often, but um, in in the and this is an old book, but the uh, Star Trek technical manual, where they had all kinds of cool different things, they really only showed the uh, the, the the standard emblem with the different uh, designs on the inside for the different areas of the ship, like sciences and engineering and command. Mm. They never uh, had any acknowledgement of any other. Uh, badge designs. Yeah, but let's be honest. All the other badge designs don't paled look, in comparison. Don't look at all as cool as the Enterprise one. No. No, certainly uh, not the Venturas. What is that like? Just a bar? Yeah, it's a like a little bar? yeah like an bar with or something. It's a bar with a little triangle at the bottom. Big deal. Boring. All right, let's not beat up their emblems. And of course, as we know in the new Star Trek film, if you take a look at the material that they have on. The actual material is all made up of those little, uh, that, that basically the Enterprise uh, badge emblem. Yeah. Very prevalent in the, the new movie. Did you, did you like that? The little logo actually in the, sewn in the into their costumes? Yeah, it looks good. I like it. Because that, didn't that kind of start with Spider-Man, the, the motion picture, where he had kind of like a pebbly look uh, on his costume, which oh, kind of gave right. it a texture? Yep. And then uh, I know that when they made Superman Returns, one of the original Superman outfits had where all the blue was. It was a whole bunch of little Superman emblems that made up the blue. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, huh. Brian Singer didn't like that. He thought it was too made made the costume too busy, even oh. though it would have looked just like uh, you know Spock's outfit in Star Trek the the 2009 movie. So he made them change it, and it became like it's still kind of pebbly looking, like more like little diamonds or something to give it a texture but right but when they made star trek the movie they actually just went full force and had the little starfleet logo over and over and over and over and over again ah starfleet logo wait a minute <laughs> caught you well in that continuity it is the starfleet logo because even when that they're continuity. cadets and everything they had they were using that yep. logo yep so see they're acknowledging the way right. things should be but. Right, because obviously when the uh, when Nero's ship went back in time, 
they uh, decided that from now on we're only going to use this one uh, Starfleet badge. And they can do that because it's a different continuity. I, I can't remember. Did did Kelvin did did he have did that ship have the, the Kelvin? Yeah, did it have the triangle badge? I don't know. I'll have to take a look. That's a, that's a good question. Of course, the other thing is that was a long time before. You'd hope things would change a little bit over time, but yeah. All right. So we've talked about a lot except for this issue. So what did you think? I I, I think the issues. I th- I like the theme. Where the Enterprise with uh, you know better engines, uh, faster than light engines, all that kind of stuff, FDLs, uh, are able to basically catch up to all these uh, earlier uh, missions where people had sublight engines. They took them forever to get any place. I I kind of like that. Um, oh, you mean the the happened. Ventura, not the Enterprise? Well, I'm saying yes. Uh, well, I'm saying in general, uh, the Enterprise or any starship. Nine times out of ten, it was the Enterprise because those were the stories. Yes, this particular one is the Ventura, but any Starfleet um, ship. Yeah, I got you. Basically, I'll... catching up with the uh, with earlier man's exploits out into the stars. I kind of like that. Uh, I think it was kind of a cheat how they had all the uh, the body parts hanging off, and you're thinking, oh my god, these are people. I mean, especially with that nasty looking. Uh, like meat cleaver knife kind of thing on the on the table, like you had described on the first on the front cover, right? And then you find out, oh, it's just android parts. Big deal. <laughs> I mean, it made it look like it was going to be some kind of a uh, you know Saw Five or something. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It was a it was a tease that there a was going to be yeah a cheap a cheap ploy. <laughs> but th- that the android parts that are hanging there brings me to what my major issue with this is, and and not necessarily this story, but it, it a lot of the original series too, because there was that episode, what little girls are made of, where right. Kirk and them find some androids, and mm-hmm. I think there was also an episode where Mud had a couple of woman androids, androids. Yep. planet of androids, yeah, and they all looked exactly like a human. Right, and then when we get the next generation, we find out that Data is the most advanced android ever, and they go out of their ways to to not make him look human. Right. So, do they ever explain that? I mean, or have you ever heard of a satisfying explanation? I have not, except that um, those robots in iMud, I think it was iMud. Um, I mean, those weren't of human design, were they? I mean, a human origin. Yeah, but even if they weren't, I mean, it that was 100 years before data. So True, but... I somebody mean, probably would have gotten schematics for it and soon would have been able to cre- recreate it. Perhaps, perhaps. I don't know. I just... I don't know. I didn't watch the old show uh, until... I didn't watch it religiously until there was already the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching those episodes going... What? Data Data's the most advanced and he looks really fake compared to these guys. But and they thought, purposely but they purposely made Data look that way, right? So that he yeah. couldn't be mistaken for a real human. Right, right. No, uh, yeah, that's my point. I guess if I have a point at all. Um it's just that you know, if you grew up on Next Generation those episodes and maybe this comic book might rub you the wrong way because you see androids that look and breathe and act and everything just like a human. Right. Yep. So that's all I'm trying to say. So is that is that the big controversy one or is there a different one still cup- upcoming? Uh, no, it'll be upcoming. Oh, okay. okay. So, what do you, yeah. What do you think so about the Ventura? I thought the Ventura looked awesome. Awesome. Cool. You didn't like it? No, it's okay. It's okay. It's just, um, you know, in these early ones before the Constitution class, you know, obviously they want to look different. And But, yeah, I, I didn't necessarily get the feeling that it looked old, per se. It looked different, but it didn't necessarily look old uh, to me. No, I agree. And my my notes actually say that it looks like a, it looks like a original series version of the Enterprise E. It, to me, it looks like the Sovereign oh, class yeah, Enterprise. Because yeah, yeah. it well, has... The, the saucer section's actually, yeah. So the uh, saucer attached. section, the engineering's yeah. all attached, and then the right. nacelles come off. Right, and then uh, it's a little flatter in the um, in the engineering area. 
Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So why they go away from that to the spindly, almost uh, spider-like appendages uh, of the Constitution class? I don't know. I don't know, but I had the I, same I, thing. I, I thought the Kelvin was kind of – I liked the Kelvin design. I thought that was cool. But, it, you know, it kind of – you know, it, it still it, – it made sense that it was an older ship to me anyway. What about the NX-01 Enterprise? You Did know, you... there too. That was just different. That didn't scream to me old. See, I thought it did. I always have an argument with my wife about that because she thinks that it looks too advanced. But to me, it, it looks old, even though obviously the special effects were a lot better. But I could buy that that was a you know a, an early, early version of what the Enterprise will end up being. I uh, I think that the older ship should have bigger engines, more uh, much larger in proportion to the rest of the ship. So, and I also think that the uh, Enterprise E design, where it's not so spindly, but you know the uh, where, where the engineering and saucer sections are 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 fused together, and it's more of a dart shape rather than that big, huge proboscis of a of a saucer section uh, with the Enterprise D. Uh, I, I that I think looks advanced, and the fact that the uh, Voyager's engines are so small, that screams to me a more advanced ship than than the original Enterprise. And then I would think that even an older version uh, of a Starship should have even bigger engines. Yeah. Uh, uh, and maybe more spindly. I don't know. Uh, I, I, think, I think they had an awful lot, of, for it being the first ship, the first Starship, it had an awful lot of uh, comforts. Uh, oh, the Enterprise? The NX-1. Mm. Okay. In Enterprise. No, I, no. I, I, I got to agree. I, I a little bit, I agree with your wife a little bit. Hmm. Fine. Fine, be that way. <laughs> and then I have one more note. Um, do you have any notes before I get to my last one? Um, just that it was just, uh, I, I think story-wise, they just wanted to get it all over with and tie it up into a quick, neat bow because I think it was a little ho- a little far-fetched where the tricorder, she's able to discharge the power or something and disable the robot because it's so old it doesn't have the shielding from it. I thought that was a bit of a stretch. Okay, fine, granted. But the fact that all the other robots were tied into uh, D12 or whatever the heck the thing's number was, mm-hmm. designation was, I thought that was uh, pretty far-fetched. Uh, and one last thing I have to say is the panel placement was confusing at times. So in the middle or in the middle, in the first half of the story, tw- as they're coming up towards the middle and they're showing you know, the, the bit more pr- panoramic shots of the mm-hmm. town and the, and the surrounding mountains and things, where instead of going one page, top to bottom, left to right, it went across pages. I found that confusing. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can uh, see that. Like when, they're, when, they're, when they first see the graveyard. Yes, exactly, right, yeah. right, exactly. So a, a traditional comic book, you know, one page, top to bottom. If it is split up horizontally, it's left to right. And then all of a sudden you have these things going uh, across both page. You know, page one, top panel, you need to go across to page two, top panel. And then zip down to the first page again and zip across, then zip down and zip across. Uh, it was confusing <laughs> at first. And then they go right back to normal again in the next set of pages. Right. Yeah, usually when they do the two-page, it's usually like a splash page or something, and it's, yeah. you know, I guess easier to flow. I, I could see I could see what you're saying. I mean, I figured it out, mind you. But yeah. At yeah. first it threw me off because I was looking at the continuity of it, and it didn't make sense. Yeah, because they're, mean, like, getting their costumes on. So, like, the, on the bottom of the first page, they're starting to get their costumes on, and then, then the, only the bottom of the second page do you see them. Actually wearing them. Yep. Where the top of both pages, they're they're not. So I I totally see what you're saying. That's it. I'm done. What? All right. My last one was um, what exactly were those androids that went up to the Enterprise? Were they fully androids, or were they somehow clones of of them? Because I don't think I don't think they were clones. Well, but, one... but but they were androids. They made to look just like them. Yeah, well, what did D12 say? He did say something about... a little bit? He said something about how he used their... He said, I found uh, ways to copy DNA and RNA of the of the dead colonists. 
I brought them back to life in a way. I remember who they were and broadcast it to them. I even created the children which they had longed. So if they're droids or androids, why would they need RNA and DNA of the, the colonists? I don't know. So I'm assuming that he used the RNA and DNA of the Ventura people too. Yep. Which just confused me because that to me that that screams clone, not robot. And yet when you, the last page you see one of the doppelgangers on a medical bed without his skin, and he's obviously an android. Yep, mechanical underneath his skin. I don't know. I think it was just a way to try to make him seem, uh, make the robots seem more human-like. Uh, account for the differences. I mean, how the heck's a robot going to give all these people personalities or these robots all personalities that 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 actually seem realistic? I don't know. Maybe it was just a way to help describe, uh, justify how they were able to do that. The robot was able to do that, but uh, yeah, it's. I think the whole thing just had a lot of stretches of believability. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and another thing, just to comment, is how one of the youngest members of the colony was able to increase the robot's uh, D12's uh, intelligence and all that kind of stuff. It was just reminding me of Data and uh, Noonie and Sung. Oh, when it shows him as an old man? Yep. Yeah. Working on the robot and making him super intelligence and stuff. Yeah, I could see just that. Just reminded me of that. Just reminded me of it. He looks kind of like Rip Van Winkle when he actually starts to die. Shows him in bed and his beard is like down to his stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I guess when you're the last person alive on your planet, you just don't need to shave anymore. Yeah, pretty you just much. Just let you yourself go a little bit. You don't care. You really don't care. Yeah, I think in the in the one thing where he's working on D12's head, where it's half open, I think he looks like God with really cool goggles on. <laughs> with Dr. Horrible goggles on? With Dr. Horrible goggles, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Good catch. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember God usually using Dr. Horrible Goggles, though. Exactly. Well, it's God. I mean, you think he'd need anything like that? Come on. All right. Issue number four. Okay. I'll take this one. Thank you. Issue number four, Shadows of the Past. Published date, June 2009. Creative team, uh, same people. John Byrne, writing and uh, drawings. Color, Loverne Kindzierski. Uh, letters, Neil you you could take whatever uh editor is uh, chris ryle okay cover shows number one crouching next to a crewman with an arrow sticking out of his chest and a mysterious dark-haired man with her back to them and a laser pistol drawn from all sides there are arrows and spearheads pointed at them wielded by long-haired blonde men the scene is presented with a silhouette of the enterprise on a star field similar to the cover in the previous issue, but with different things inside that are specific to the issue. The story opens with a full-page panel of the Enterprise with a tiny shuttlecraft coming in for a landing right up her backside. Number one disembarks the just-landed shuttle, saying how the ship has changed so much since her last visit. The second dark-haired male officer disembarks and confirms he is Lieutenant Commander Christopher Pike. Pike is told to meet the captain on the bridge, while the rest including number one, are told to unpack in their quarters and head to sickbay to be checked out. Almost as number one enters sickbay, the ship is rocked. In response, she heads to the ridge where they are dealing with a spatial distortion powerful enough to violently shake the Enterprise. On the bridge, science officer Luaba reports the ship was rocked by them passing through the remnants of an extremely powerful transporter beam. Though at first they cannot determine the origin point or destination of the beam, uh, number one comes up with a clever plan to zigzag through the beam to gather enough information to identify the uh, destination and origin point of the beam. They are able to uh, figure out the destination point and they set a course for it. When they arrive, Captain April sends an away team down to the planet that includes Pike and Number One, among other red-shirted gentlemen. The idyllic planet lulls the landing party into a false sense of security when suddenly Mr. Luaba accidentally trips a spiked trap that kills him instantly. Ensign Reed freaks and heads off running right into another deadly spiky trap that kills her too. Pike calls for an emergency beam-out. Very wise thing in that situation. Scene shifts to the Enterprise Bridge, where Captain April, Pike, and others 
examine a newly discovered settlement built out of native materials on the planet's surface. They discover four more settlement structures, all built like a fortress with strong circular walls. April reports that the settlements are populated by humans from Earth. Uh, That's Dr. April, that is, not Captain April. Um, Despite the danger, already demonstrated by the planet's inhabitants, they beam down a landing party led by Pike into the middle of one of the settlement compounds. They are attacked immediately by club and spear-wielding humans that speak English. The attack continues despite being stunned by laser slash phaser fire until they finally start to get the idea and the attack stops. Suddenly, the previously attacking humans run to the nearest wall saying they are attacking. Without warning, the outer walls burst in and three humans riding strange alien creatures that look like a cross between an ostrich, a parrot, and a velociraptor charge in. The riders are able to magically knock three phaser pistols out of the landing party's uh, hands and take number one captive. Though she fought valiantly, the much stronger rider knocks her unconscious. The doctor shoots one of the alien creatures with her trusty hypo, bringing it down and trapping the rider's leg. The warrior is brought back to the ship, where the doctor injects him with some kind of truth serum and gets him to tell them all. Back on the planet, number one comes to in a hut where she is approached by a group of warriors. They tell of their origins on Earth. They are genetically engineered clones, the product of Dr. Eugene Eckhart back in 1969. The doctor's plans for them were foiled by a man named Gary Seven and his companion, who somehow transported all 250 of the clones to the alien planet they are now standing on. Programmed for war, they split up into five groups who built their own fortifications and waged war on each other for hundreds of years. Given their breeding, the system served them well. After number one rebuked them for their inability to work together towards a more constructive way of life, another voice joined in that turned out to be Commander Pike's. Pike and an, ensign, and an ensign stun the clones with their lasers, and the trio run out of the encampment. They explain that the ship can't beam them up due to concentrations of a strange substance in the ground and plants, so they need to run into a more open area with less interference. While making their escape, an arrow is shot from a tree and hits the ensign in the chest. Pike stunned the bowmen and continued to fire as another tribe had taken to pursuing them. With the ensign incapacitated, their run was over. Using their laser, or his laser, Pike put up a wall of flame between them and the pursuers. Luckily, they were now far enough into the open that the transporters could beam two of them out, but the arrow in the ensign is preventing his beam out. The doctor beams down to cut it out when the clones figured out that the fire could not stop their arrows from reaching the landing party. The surgery was done just in time as they are beamed out, just as a devastating volley of arrows are about to reach them. Later aboard the Enterprise, they are told Earth Central has ordered them to leave orbit and cease trying to contact the clones. They are too violent and too unlikely to overcome their genetic programming to join the larger human society. Number one is quite unhappy to leave human beings in need, isolated on that planet. But April April makes the case that it's for the best. Future ships will be sent to observe them and keep, and they will keep options open for maybe eventually helping them. Later, Pike joins Number One, who is completing her biographical research on Roberta Lincoln, Gary Seven's companion. She tells stories of advanced technology and adventures when Roberta Lincoln was had told her granddaughter these stories that she thought were just stories, but in the end turn out to be true, and that a week before her 91st birthday, she disappeared and was last seen walking away from her house, holding a black cat, perhaps named Isis. So, that's the end of the story. A very interesting uh, tie-in to the uh, Gary Seven storyline. Yeah, so John Byrne must must really like Gary Seven, because he did a a miniseries before this one called Assignment Earth. Mm Mm-hmm which was all about Gary Seven, and I'm assuming had something to do with these clones in 1969. Yeah. Um, and that's just an assumption. I, that's, I think it's a good assumption, because it's obviously, uh, to some degree, a well-thought-out storyline, which we've never heard before. 
Right. I never heard before. True. And what's funny is that <laughs> just as of, let's see, June 2010, so about a year after this, this issue we just read, John Byrne came out with this, uh, a new miniseries called Star Trek Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor. Huh. And I was actually just reading this one today. I was on issue number three. And guess where Dr. McCoy ends up? On this here planet with the clones. So uh, not to give too much away, but uh, he actually revisits that, that same planet just, uh, you know, 10, 15 years later. Hmm. So it's kind of cool how it all gets tied in together. So real quick, you said they magically knocked the phasers out of the hands, the uh, ostrich riding guys? Yes. But they're actually throwing like oh, I know. arrowheads. Like Chinese star what, style. Well, uh, or, or like little tiny boomerang things. Yeah. Yeah. I, what, what, bull- okay, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, what BS? You're riding in on these ostrich things, and you're able to throw these little little, little bo- mini boomerang things just precisely enough to knock out uh, these guns out of these people's hands. Right. I mean, first off, how do you even know they have guns, per se? I mean, nobody has guns on that planet. Yeah, but they came uh, from 1969, so you would think that they... No, well, would... they didn't. Their descendants did. But Where whatever. are they descendants from? Because they don't have any females, so they're all male. Well, but hold on a second. Oh, let, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's back this up. Are these supposedly the same guys that survived for 300 years or whatever it is? I think it is. Wow. So they're not only clones, but they're immortal clones. Well, they're genetically engineered. That's a good point. I thought they were the descendants of the original people that were transported, but good point. They're all male. Wow. Those are handy clones. So they were able to not only clone people, but overcome aging. Yeah, I don't remember them ever saying that they are able to clone themselves, to continue to clone themselves. It just says they sent 250 of them to the alien planet. Exactly. Here's another temporal thing. So the ship is, is, is flying through space... And it's and it passes through an extraordinarily strong transporter beam. So, these guys are transported hundreds of years ago um, from Earth to this planet, and they've been on the planet for hundreds of years. Yet the Enterprise passes through a intensely strong transporter beam, which you assume is the one that took them to the planet. So. What is this some kind of, uh, I mean, w- did the beam hang around for hundreds of years just so the Enterprise could pass through it? Or is this some kind of uh, a space-time theme thing where the beam is still traveling and it just doesn't make any sense to me? It doesn't make sense. I had the same note. But maybe maybe it is more of a temporal beaming thing where not only did it beam it, you know, hundreds of light years, but it also... Beamed them up through time, so maybe, no. maybe they haven't really been on this planet for three hundred years. Maybe it's only been twenty years or ten years yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not mentioned, or at least not what, that I can remember. Yeah, and if that is the case, why would Gary Seven bother? I mean, wouldn't you just want to if you, if you go if you want to isolate these people away from humanity? Wouldn't you just want to get rid of them? I mean, you're putting them. This one wasn't near the neutral zone, was it, or was uh, it? Uh, I don't think so. Anyway, it so might they, be near the, the Klingon is, neutral it, no, zone. No, it's, it's the robot one where they were near the Romulan, right. where the neutral zone or something. This one isn't. Yeah. But the main point is, they're way out there. I mean, why would you go through time also? But yeah, uh, I, and I think maybe we're at a disadvantage because we, we haven't read the Assignment Earth yet, which is and obviously fine. a prequel to this. So. Right, and it does say it's 1969 right. is when it, was, when it happened, so I don't know. So... Yeah, so I guess we should probably hold off too much judgment on that. But but I did have the same question about you know why that beam was still connecting Earth and this planet. Right, right. Uh, I thought it was really cool uh, being introduced to Pike for the first time. At least uh, the first time I've ever seen him being introduced, where he first comes on the Enterprise. Who knows? There could be other early young Pike adventures some written somewhere, but this is the first time I'm seeing uh, Pike come on the Enterprise and stuff, so I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, to my knowledge, this is the first time we've seen Pike uh, before he was captain. Cool. 
so, but, you know, obviously this flies in the face of the early voyages continuity where, you know, it's it's not established that Pike and April actually served aboard the Enterprise. Because I think in issue number one of the early voyages, didn't they pretty much say this was the first time Pike had been on the Enterprise? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I definitely don't recall anything saying that Pike was uh, first officer of April. Right, and they definitely, in that comic book, Early Voyages by Marvel, he meets number one, or Robbins, or whatever you want to call her, for the very first time there, which was when he asked her to be his first officer. So, again, this is just different continuity. You just got to run with it. Exactly. I mean, it's like, what the heck, just enjoy it. So, I really did like having Robert April's wife on the on the ship as the doctor. Yes. I thought that was actually pretty cool. Yes. Thanks for explaining that. I did refer to Dr. April instead of Captain April, but I didn't explain that. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was good. That was good. So when I, what, what's really cool about it is that the first and only time we actually see Robert April in, a, in, in anything other than a comic book was in the very last episode of Star Trek the Animated Series called The Counter Clock Incident. And in that, a very old uh, Admiral April and his wife show up to the Enterprise for to be taken somewhere. I forgot. Um, and in in that episode, it he does mention that, or she mentions that she was the she says she was the very first medical officer aboard the Enterprise. Oh, cool! And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that they that you know John Byrne obviously kept that that in continuity. Yeah. It's good to have these uh, fans writing this stuff because obviously it must be fans, yeah. Uh, you know who 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 are turning into comic book writers. Yeah, and just just to be real quick, we we never mentioned it last week, but John Byrne is is a pretty huge comic book writer. So I mean, uh, back in the eighties, they revamped or rebooted Superman, and he was the one that pretty much did all of that. And I think he's re he's like rebooted Spider-Man at one point and I mean he's he's pretty much written for every major comic book character in the last, you know, 30 years. So cool. so he's 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 a big name in the comic book industry, which is kind of cool that he he's now writing, you know, a mini series for Star Trek for IDW every year. Seems mm-hmm. so. It's just kind of cool. He obviously must like the material and that's why he's doing it. Right. So, anyways, uh, I thought it was interesting how they keep on referring to uh their orders come from Earth Central instead of the Federation. So obviously pre-Federation. Yeah, but it, uh, it did, shouldn't be pre-Federation, should it? Uh, that's what they're insinuating. Hmm. Well, I Earth know, Central. I know. I, I don't remember. I don't remember them referring to Earth Central in the uh, in the Marvel series. No, they call it Starfleet. Yeah. But you're right. I don't think they could even call it the Federation in the episode of The Cage. Because he doesn't say United Federation of Planets. He's, he calls it something else that was kind of weird. Yeah, I agree. It came in later. So maybe that's where that's where this, this is coming from. Yeah, another thing that's kind of interesting is the uh, Prime Directive, if I remember correctly, did not come into Star Trek until like the second season at some point. So interesting to hear them spouting off about the uh, Prime Directive so early in uh, human space exploration. Now, is that just the first time it was mentioned in the show, or is this, is there an actual episode of the Star Trek where they initiate the the Prime Directive? No, it was just mentioned for the first time. Oh, okay. I think, if I remember correctly, Gene L. Kuhn is the one came up with the idea of the uh, Prime Directive. Well, it makes sense. And... Oh, it makes sense. I'm just saying, I, I had never... Re- I thought it was something that came in later, but I guess that's just because they thought of it a little further into the series. It could have been there the whole time. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's what they implied that you know just because we never talked about it, that didn't mean it didn't right. it wasn't in effect. Exactly. Because I know they toy around with it a lot in Enterprise, where they're talking about how there should be some sort of guidelines and <laughs> things like that. Right. Exactly. As they as they bump around the uh, the galaxy. Uh, screwing around with stuff. Yeah. So uh, the uh, plucked chicken dinosaurs, you didn't like them? <laughs> uh, no, I think they're exactly what I described. They look like an ostrich or uh, beaks of a 
Parrot and then kind of sort of Velociraptor baddies. It's 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 quite a melange <laughs> of creatures that they came up with. And and they're riding like Tauntauns. Yeah. Now what what got me was that they come in. They they the guys are riding the ostriches or whatever they are. They break into the village, and the first thing they say, if I'm not mistaken, is like, "Get the women" or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but get the women or get the woman. Yeah, and then they they end up grabbing number one. Yep. And I remember reading this, thinking, "Holy cow, what are they going to do to her?" I was thinking, you know, <laughs> Vi- pillage Vikings. Yeah. Yeah. And then when they do get her to the other their encampment, they're just like, "Hey, let let us tell you our story." Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Not nearly as malicious as I was thinking they were going to go with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to kidnap you and then tell you all about myself. Exactly. And this guy named Gary Seven. That... Exactly. Exactly. That... So, um, so it was handy that these guys apparently wanted information. Apparently, word, word travels quickly when strangers come on the planet. Yeah, that's a good point. How did they know that that they had visitors? Well, they could have looked in the traps. Uh, I mean, they had two dead bodies there, or did they retrieve the dead bodies? I don't think they, they did. Up? But I thought those were those traps were. Oh yeah, they probably did beam them back up. You think they would before they came back? But maybe they were observed. I don't know. But somehow everybody knows about them being around, and that they may have some link to Earth since they do look like human beings, and they're obviously not the clone guys. So uh, interesting how they uh, they want information like that. Yeah. Well, even though they're very warlike, they're probably quite intelligent, also. Well, they have to be. They're they're genetically altered. So. Well, is that? But we assume genetically altered is always for the better. Well, I was thinking that they were were kind of like Khan and his Superman, but I guess these guys would predate Khan by about thirty years. Yeah, something like that. Because Khan, what the eugenic war was supposed to happen in nineties, and these guys were in the sixties. So Khan was just a little baby when these guys a little baby when these guys got beamed up. But I really liked the story all the way up until they couldn't beam that guy up because he had yeah. an arrow in him. That was yeah. about the only part I didn't like. Yeah, that was weak. I, I uh even though I understand that they need to every once in a while make sure transporters don't work or communicators don't work or phasers are drained of power just to make things more interesting so that something could happen in the storyline. I do kind of find it weak, but and and it's not like it's a mineral or something in the ground. It's it's something that's in the plant life and everything. So that's kind of weird. I thought they really just put this in here to to show how Captain April would let his wife go down into the thick of it, knowing that she might not come back. But maybe maybe that's not what was going on. No, that might be. That's probably part of it. So. Anyways. Duty. Duty over love and protecting your your wife. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I, I, I did like Assignment Earth, which was the name of the original Trek episode that introduced Gary Seven. Right. Roberta. And uh, Terry Garr, by the way, who became a big star later. Um I, I I always liked that episode. I always thought that would have been a cool spinoff series if they actually did it, because of course that was the idea that it would become a spinoff TV series that was never picked up. And really, the thing kind of reminded me a lot, storyline-wise, of uh, Doctor Who. So you you've got some advanced human-like entity, although in this case, human Gary Seven was human with advanced technology and all that kind of stuff, saving humanity. With his trusty, cute sidekick, to give us somebody more that we could relate to. Yeah, and he was kind of, and he was kind of a jerk, just like Doctor Who is a lot of times, where he kind of acts uh, above everybody else. Well, come on, a little, guys, a little pretentious, maybe. He is. Come on, he's got it. He's got this transporter thing that can beam you anywhere, and he's got a cool little, uh, you know, uh, Men in Black, you know, little doohickeys and. Erase your memory and stuff. I think it's pretty cool. I think that would have been been cool. Yeah. I wonder if he got any of the idea or the template a little bit from uh, Doctor Who, which of course was going on then in the early '60s. It started, I guess. I wonder if they got any of that, or whether it was just totally original ideas. I don't. Know. I think it would have made made a good series. Yeah, I think it would have too. Uh, although when I was a kid, I didn't really care for that issue or that episode because 
you know, it didn't have a lot of sci-fi in it because it was pretty much all in the 60s, but... Oh, right, right. Yeah, I've watched it. You know, I watched it later when I wasn't quite so critical or needing all the action, and I, and I enjoyed it. And uh, I, Gary Seven plays a huge part in the um, the first two of the Eugenic War, the con books. Mm-hmm. That was written by uh, I forgot his name. Yeah, I don't remember the name, but Jan Michael Friedman, or a, a good a good writer who's done a lot of Star Trek things. And I've uh, and those are good books. I've I've read those. Yeah, well, the the first two all dealt with Khan during the Eugenic War. And then there was a third one which I haven't read, which was him Khan being on the planet after Kirk drops him off. Oh, I never read that one. Yeah, it's called like Rain in Hell or something, which ironically enough is also a name of a comic book series that just started that deals with Khan's time in the in on that planet. Oh. I've only they've only come out with the first book so far and it's actually pretty good. Cool. Okay, the uh the writer of the the three Khan novels is Greg Cox. And Greg Cox, he okay. has written quite a few Star Trek stories. But uh, those first two were really good and I had Gary Seven and Roberta as as pretty pretty huge players. Oh yeah. Which you know my my only real reason for bringing it up now is that I don't think that this little bio that number one is reading would really fall into that continuity because I think Roberta's story ends up being a little different when she's older in those books. I don't remember it going that far in the future. But... Yeah, because. Because, I mean, she was already pretty old by the time the 90s were coming around. And, and wasn't Khan kind of being groomed to be her replacement? But she never had any kids. So I don't know who, who these grandkids are that, that number one's talking about. So oh. I don't know. Maybe. maybe well, maybe I, was. I, thought it was, I thought it was interesting that they actually talked about the ultimate fate of what happened to uh, a companion, uh, Gary Seven's companion. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. That he came back for her someday. Or so you assume. Yeah, but that's awesome. Uh, I never, I never put the Doctor Who and Gary Seven together, but that that makes total sense now. Yeah, and and actually, the way she went out, you know, into the sunset, whatever you think theoretically, maybe being picked up by the advanced uh, race that produced Gary. Uh, maybe Gary picked her up. Who knows? Um, well, Isis was with her, so exactly. Isis was an alien, right? Yes. So that just reminded me a little bit of how in Babylon Five. How uh, Captain Sheridan went out at the end. I've never, just to do I've a, never watched that show. Just to do a tangent into a totally different TV series storyline. Well, we've already talked about Doctor Who, so we might as well bring up Babylon Five. Babylon Five. Let's throw some Lost in Space in there. No, 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 no Lost in Space. There's, <laughs> it doesn't relate to Lost in Space at all. <laughs> all right. Any more on issue number four? Nope. All right. Issue number five, which was released in July 2009 and it is entitled The Ends of Eternity. So writing and art by John Byrne, colors by Laverne Kendersky, letters by Neil Yutaki, and edits by Chris Ryle. So the cover within the silhouette of the Enterprise, we see Pike and number one Robbins, whatever you want to call her. Um, looks like they're falling, and behind them you see all these little white spheres with uh, black eyes. A very strange cover. So, so, so aboard the Enterprise, Captain April is trying to give Robbins a promotion, uh, but she's refusing it. Uh, she she come, Spock then comes and says that he tells April that they've made it to the Alfie or Indian system. April and Robbins arrive to the bridge, um, and they release First Officer Pike, uh, which April refers to as number one. Pike informs them that the system they have reached is just gone. Not destroyed, just vanished. Uh, just then, the chief engineer calls in to tell April that the chronometers all around the ship are going crazy. Twelve hours later, they are still debating on what's causing the phenomenon when the science officer finds a two-dimensional pattern and thinks that the beta reticuli system might have just vanished. Isn't that Ratatouille? Is it no, Ratatouille? No, that's probably wrong. No, that's probably wrong. 
so anyways, he thinks that the Beta Reticuli system might have just vanished, or is about to vanish. So the captain orders him to take them there at Time Warp Factor 6. So yes, it's Time Warp, not Regular Warp. Yes. Uh, as they're warping to their destination, they are captured into some sort of tunnel slash hole in space. So kind of like the wormhole from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, after they're knocked around a whole bunch, uh, they find themselves in complete blackness. As time passes, they find some stars that uh, they find the stars that were missing from their universe. Uh, and then they find out uh, that they're actually in some sort of artificial sphere. Uh, kind of like a huge galaxy-wide Dyson sphere. So uh, April takes them to the edge of the sphere, and they beam Spock, Robbins, Pike, and two other crew members into the into the artificial sphere. Uh, the transporter starts to smoke as soon as they're beamed over, and crewman Lavelle uh, does not make it. He just turns into goo or doesn't appear at all. I can't remember which one it was. Upon searching the reason for the transporter malfunction, transporter chief finds that some of the circuits have uh, greatly aged, even though he knows that they're brand new. The landing party uh, are in a are in complete white. Uh, there there's no floors or walls or anything visible yet. They're able to walk around. Uh, they start to separate to cover more ground while they're trying to figure out where exactly they are. Uh, on, on the Enterprise, random crew members are starting to have accelerated cell growth, and it's not the normal just getting old and putting some old makeup on them. They're, like, starting to mutate and look something like that would be in a Resident Evil-type game. They look very uh, nasty. All right, so the landing party find a cluster of white spheres. Uh, Spock is able to start communicating with them. The spheres start talking to Pike and Robbins directly. Uh, because Spock is is like going crazy because of the the communication. Find out that they're now at the end of time, and that these spheres are trying to keep the universe from dying. So they're pulling stars from the past into the their their timeline. Uh, but the stars never make it. Soon after the transporting of them, they they start to die. And then they find out that uh, the time ab- aboard the Enterprise is accelerated uh, faster than the time here on the sphere. And we actually see April, and he's a uh, a huge mass of a person. He looks kind of like maybe the what Jabba the Hutt would look like if he was uh, bipedal, like like a human. He reminds <laughs> me of a like a really fat swamp thing or something with a uniform. Yeah, he kind of looks like he's like Clayface or something from the Batman comics. Yeah, there you go. Very nasty looking. Anyways, Robbins pleads with the spheres that uh, they need to stop stealing stars and to return them back to normal time. Uh, they eventually agree, knowing that for them the universe will end and, and them along with it. So the Enterprise is sent back to the present and everybody's deformity is reversed. The only exception is that if somebody actually died, uh, they're still dead. So it doesn't bring the dead back to life, but it does revert everybody back to their, their normal age. Handy. Yeah, well, it's still sad for everybody who actually died due to being incredibly old. All right, so the ending shows Pike and Robbins uh, talking about her refusing the promotion. She tells him that she's waiting for the right posting. When he asks what that that would be, she says, That's easy, number one. I want your job. The end. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth Shelby. (laughs) Well, I guess if you weren't that into Star Trek, it... You might not know who she was until this very last page, you think? Since she's never mentioned by name, and I don't know. I don't know if anybody would read this that weren't wasn't really into Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, right. So you're saying if somebody did not necessarily, uh, was not familiar with the original Trek episode, uh, The Menagerie, you might not know that that's number one of that of that famous episode. Right. You know now. At least she, at least she, said, at least she didn't say something like, that's easy. I want to be number one. Ping! There you go. That's your name. Get used to it. You'll never be called anything else from now on. Well, all right. I'm going to go on a tangent here since you kind of brought it up. I just finished a novel called uh, Vulcan's Glory by DC Fontania, I think is how you pronounce uh-huh. her name. She she yeah. was a writer for the original series, and she was the story editor for the animated series. So... She wrote this novel, and it was based on Spock's first uh, 
first mission on the Enterprise. Cool. But uh, but the reason I'm bringing it up now is that number one's in it, and they and they just refer to her as number one. But they mentioned that she's actually some sort of uh, genetically altered human, and that she is the peak of perfection, both mentally and physically. And that's why she would be called number one, even if she wasn't the first officer. And I remember reading that, and I'm going, really? That doesn't seem right. I don't know. There was a lot of... Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, something that's very odd about her is that they talk about all the, 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 what, 50 commendations or something? This was like her 51st commendation, or was that the previous? Anyway, she's got all these Uh, commendations coming out like crazy. I mean, obviously, she's got an awful lot of uh, abilities, and in these issues, you know, she's always the one with the answer. So she's a pretty cool person, but she doesn't want to get uh, promoted too fast or too far. Yeah. I-, I did like that she came up from engineering. So you don't see too many engineers that end up being captains. So it was kind of yeah. cool to see that, that she might go that route. Right. But this in this issue, she's helmsman. Yeah. Which, which if I'm not mistaken, she is in the menagerie. Oh, so remember she? how we were oh, talking really? about how it was Riker was the first one that was just executive officer, not something else? I think she was helmsman and first officer in, in the menagerie. Oh, interesting. And then I yeah, I don't I don't remember her duty station on the Enterprise. I don't know whether we ever saw it, but Yeah, and I'm only judging that by I've read two novels now based in Pike's time, the the Vulcan's right. Glory and uh uh where the sky meets the sea or something like that. And in both of those, she she's doing double duty, and it kind of makes sense that. But I'd have to go back and watch Menagerie again to make sure. But I'm pretty sure since since everything's pointing that way, it, that must be the, what happened. Right. She was helmsman and first officer. Anyways, so back to this issue. Um, out of the five, I have the least to say about this one because I cared for it the least. I did like this. I I too like this the least. I mean, not necessarily saying it was, it was a bad issue. I mean, because I've read worse, but uh, I just thought this one was just a little. Yeah, you talk to a malevolent entity or a, or some sort of evolved human that's just now a ghost type thing, and you basically talk them into letting them kill themselves. Yep, and also the idea that they're being that advanced creatures that you know we could even talk to them on the same level is just kind of ridiculous. And the fact that number one would be making such wonder and Pike such wonderful points about what they should do and not do. I don't know. It seems pretty unlikely. Yeah, you're talking. You're basically talking them into killing themselves uh, or allowing themselves to die. Right. And 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 are these things descendants of the Q continuum? I don't know. Or seem pretty powerful. Or are they supposed to be humans? Because I kind of got the feeling that this was the ultimate evolution of. Of us, quote unquote us. I don't know. Maybe they didn't say that. Though. Yeah, they maybe they didn't. But but they've done that in Star Trek before, where yeah. they've shown how you know people humans will evolve into these spiritual beings or whatever. So I, I maybe I was just or into it. Or in the case of Voyager, into big huge salamanders. That wasn't an evolution. That was a mutation because they went oh, that, to warp ten. That was evolution. That was what. Human, they insinuate that's what humans are going to uh, evolve into. Is that what they said? That's what they said. And then, and then the captain and Chakotay become those big, huge. No, it was captain in uh, in Paris. No. Yeah. I'm pretty. Sh- I-, I thought that was number. I thought that was uh, Chakotay. No, because Chakotay was in charge of Voyager, and uh, it was Paris and the captain that was on that experimental mm. ship. Okay. We don't want to get bogged down on this, but I thought it was Chakotay and the captain who had to get stuck on that planet, and they had to leave him behind, and then somehow I forgot the rest of the storyline, but they end up these uh, accelerated uh, evolution, and they become these big, huge salamanders. Anyway, the, the whole episode was stupid. <laughs> anyway, it was actually... and then somehow the doctor gets them back into their, their, their proper state. Oh, my God. Oh God! Yeah, it it was an episode called Threshold. Threshold, okay. And it was Janeway in Paris. Okay, I'll go with you on that. You better because it's it's. Believe me, I'll be looking that up. Yeah, because remember they they it's like a slow transformation, 
So they like start turning into the salamanders, and then he and Paris starts changing first, and he ends up like kidnapping Janeway, and then he goes into like the Delta Flyer, and they fly off, and Chicote is in charge of, of Voyager, and follows them and finds them where they've had little lizard babies on that planet. Oh, that's right, Janeway and Paris <laughs> making the lizard babies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just remember that episode going, what? <laughs> and then especially when they had the little babies at the end, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and they left the babies behind? Yeah, they, oh. they leave the babies behind. You know what happens when you go to Warp 10 stays when you go to Warp 10. Apparently so. That doesn't make any and, sense, but oh well. And another thing is typos. In this Typos one? in this. Yes. I didn't catch them, but that doesn't say a lot. What where, where where was one? Page four. Page four. Towards the bottom, and it is Captain April, who looks mighty young in this issue, where he says the make it happen, Lieutenant. Time warp factor five. Yep. He says that. It's supposed to be then make it happen, not the make it. There's a missing N. It's true. God, how how annoying. So we need to write Neil Yutaki and let him know he forgot the N. Exactly. Well, that that's not quite as blatant as the repeating of the same line in two different balloons. Oh, yeah. That was that was cheap, too. What was that? That was issue number... Oh, that was the Pike. Uh, the Pike uh, that, that was Captain's a different line. series. Yeah. Right, because that was a little while back. That was last week. It was last episode. No, I think it was. I don't think so. No, it was last. It was the Pike, the Pike issue, the Captain's Log Pike. They were all Captain. Okay, I I thought it was longer ago than that, but it has been a few weeks since we've recorded. Yep. Also, another thing that's kind of confusing as you go through these different uh, series, uh, uh, Pike series, that is. They flip between calling it a phaser and a laser, and just regular warp and time warp. Yeah, so it just depends on who's writing it, whether they do the retcon and call it the right thing. But I do like how the Enterprise has the little uh, pointy things coming out of the nacelles. <laughs> you love those erect nipples. I just think it's a it's a nice attention to detail. Uh, it's a nice attention to detail. Uh, a stupid detail. It doesn't look right, but yes. It just doesn't look right because that's not what you're used to seeing it. <laughs> Don't tell me that. I know it's not what I'm used to seeing, and it's stupid looking. <laughs> you sound just like anybody who bashes the the original Enterprise because they're used to the Enterprise D. Don't you dare bash the original Enterprise. Oh, I've heard them bash it. I've heard no. it. I've heard it bash. Now, mind you, it's a stupid design, but it's you know you never forget your first Enterprise. Exactly, and for some people, that might be Pike's Enterprise. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Anyways, anything else on issue number five? Uh, no. All right, so uh, real quick in the uh, elsewhere, this was uh, May, June, and July of 2009, right? Something happened in 2009. I don't really remember May of 2009. Oh, yeah, the new Star Trek movie. Ah. So anyways, the movie came out. Uh, the novel for uh, the novelization by Alan Dean Foster came out. Um, and then also there was a series in the Vanguard series called Open Secrets by Dayton Ward, which, which I haven't read any of the Vanguard series. It's it's a series that's based in the uh, original series timeline during Kirk's first five-year mission, but but this book, the reason why I'm mentioning it is uh, has a guest star of Meryl, uh, excuse me, Carol Marcus. Ah. Yeah. So... I might actually want to look that one up one of these days. But basically, the Vanguard, it's basically based on a space station instead of a a, a ship. So it's kind of like Deep Space Nine in the original series timeline. All right, so then in June 2009, there was an original series novel called Troublesome Minds by Dave Gaylanter. And basically, that one's I'd about... changing my name. What's that? I'd be changing my name. <laughs> and I might be mispronouncing it like I mispronounce everything. Uh, but basically that one's about uh, Spock being controlled by some other telepath, and it's sure. based during the original series. Uh, then July 2009, the uh, Next Generation novel called Losing the Peace by William Lesner. And uh, this is based two years after Nemesis, which is about f five years before the destruction of Romulus, which was in the 2009 movie. 
right. And it is actually book number 19 to be based after Nemesis. So uh, that that 19 comes from all the spinoff novels that were still going on. So we have the originals, the Next Generation, Voyager, Titan, and a, a series called Destiny. So all those series is happening after Nemesis. This would be book number 19. And it's basically the aftermath of the last Borg invasion, which I haven't quite got that far in my reading yet, so I don't know what happened. And I didn't want to read too much because I didn't want to be spoiled. And that's it. So uh, next week we're going to be doing what again? More Pike. More Pike. Can ne- I don't know. You can never get enough Pike. Come on. No, no. You cannot get enough Pike, pike in your life. We're going to do uh, some just random Pike issues from DC so there is a Star Trek uh, volume 2 annual number 4 and then the other one is oh the other one is that alien spotlight Vulcans and then Orions or we're skipping that Uh, we're going to do Orions on the last the next episode after oh no no you're right we're doing Orions and Vulcans next next week right okay cool so alien spotlight Vulcans Orions and Star Trek Volume Two, Annual Number Four by DC Comics. Excellent. Looking forward. It's gonna be good stuff. Ah. And then we'll almost be done with Pike and his adventures. Sadly. Well, unfortunate. Then we can get back into some different time frames. Yes. And different characters. Maybe, uh, maybe Gary Seven. That would be cool. Because Gary Seven's in quite a few of the DC stuff and in quite a bit of the IDW stuff. I'd like to see more of that. Uh, Since I missed the series, because it didn't happen. That's true. That is true. Great. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Star Trek Comic Book Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes, or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.